This is the Hack Your Wealth podcast, episode number 33. You can completely exclude from taxes up to $250,000 in gain if you're a single filer, or twice that, $500,000 if you're married filing joint. Welcome to the Hack Your Wealth podcast, where we teach wealth building hacks for lawyers, engineers, and MBAs. I'm your host, Andrew Chen. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Hack Your Wealth podcast. Today, I want to talk about the home sale capital gains tax exclusion. These are the tax rules that apply when you sell your home. They are fairly complex. I've actually written a fairly extensive blog post on the Hack Your Wealth blog about this exact topic, and it's one of the most popular posts on the blog, one of the most highly trafficked posts. But it is a fairly dense read, and it goes through a lot of detailed examples so that you can really you know, roll up your sleeves and get into the weeds of it. But for today's episode, what I want to do is sort of synthesize and summarize the big picture concepts that you need to know about how the home sale capital gains tax exclusion works because this is going to be something that's commonly encountered by basically every homeowner once they look to sell their home. And as of the release date of this episode, which is early June, the prime home buying season of the year is starting up right about now and is going to last through the summer. And unless you're a first time home buyer, most people who are buying a home are also selling a home. And so knowing how the tax rules work when you sell a home and how they can be used advantageously so that you can shield a lot of your capital gain from uh, taxes is going to be really important for you and as you do tax planning around selling your home. And so that's why I wanted to time the topic of today's episode for uh, now. Before we get to all that, though, as always, I want to invite you to join the Private Hack Your Wealth Facebook group. I encourage you to join. It's a way for us to connect, have a two-way dialogue. I am in there every single day responding to all the comments and questions there. And it's just a place for people to ask about financial independence and early retirement, tax strategies, real estate investing, which is what, you know, related to what today's topic is about, side business income, online income, career changes, and just all kinds of advice related to personal finance. And so I definitely encourage you to join us there. It's a good group of people. There's a lot of friendly and uh, helpful people there. And so you can check it out at hackyourwealth.com slash FB. Definitely encourage you to join us there. Okay, let's jump into the heart of today's episode. The basic idea around the home sale capital gains exclusion is that when you sell your house, the capital gains from the sale, the basically the profits that you made compared to what you paid for the house, are generally going to be taxed a fairly hefty amount, up to 15%. That's pretty sizable. But if you do things right, the IRS is actually going to give you a nice tax break. Specifically, you can completely exclude from taxes up to $250,000 in gain if you're a single filer or twice that, $500,000 if you're married filing joint. And so today what I want to do is share a lot of the details around how it works and some of the nuances that you have to be aware of so that you don't accidentally disqualify yourself by you know, making a mistake. Okay, so let's start with the basics. Who qualifies for the home sale capital gains exclusion? It is homeowners who are living in their home as their primary residence for at least two of the last five years before selling. 
That's the key. The look back is five years and you have to be living in your home for at least two of those years. They do not have to be contiguous. What type of home qualifies? Basically any home that you can live in. So it doesn't matter if it's a single family home, condo, townhouse, or whatever. All that matters is that it's your primary residence and where you are physically living. Those are the basic criteria. And if you follow those basic criteria, and there's going to be a lot of exceptions and nuances that I'm going to get into in a moment. But if you follow the basic criteria, in theory, you can exclude up to $250,000 of gain on the sale of your home if you're a single filer, half a million dollars if you're married filing jointly. If you sell your home and get less gain than those amounts, then you're, you know, you, the amount that you can exclude is obviously going to be less. It's going to be limited to the lower of your actual gain or quarter million or half a million dollars depending on your marital status. Now, the trigger that allows you to claim the exclusion is the sale of your home Now, because this is obviously a pretty generous tax break of a quarter million dollars or half a million dollars, depending on your marital status, you are limited the number of times you can actually do this. So the government only allows you to do this once every two years, which makes sense because you actually have to live in the property for two years. So you wouldn't possibly be able to do it faster than that. So just keep in mind that it generally takes two years at a minimum to qualify for the exclusion, and you can't do it faster than every two years. Now, if you're married, there are some special rules that apply. In order to get the double exclusion amount, the $500,000, there are three conditions you have to fulfill. One is that at least one spouse must have owned the home for two of the five years before the sale. Second is that both spouses must actually live in the home as their primary residence for two of the five years before the sale. Third is that neither spouse can be in a timeout period because of that once every two years rule that I just mentioned a moment ago. Uh, And so you have to generally fulfill all those three things in order to qualify for the full $500,000 exclusion. Sometimes one spouse fails uh, one, or, one or more of the criteria, but that won't knock you out of the exclusion entirely. What happens is the IRS then considers you separately as if you were not married. So that means they evaluate each of you independently to see what your own personal exclusion would have been had you been a single filer. And then it'll take whatever the partial exclusion that each spouse may have been entitled to add them up and then the sum total of that will be the actual exclusion amount that as a couple, as a married couple, you're jointly entitled to. It's also important to know that when the IRS does this analysis of like fictionally separating you two, you get a break on the first criteria, namely that the IRS will treat both spouses as having owned the property as long as either one of the spouses own the property. So if you know only the husband or the wife own the property, then the other spouse will be deemed to own the property as well. So for example, let's say a woman owns and lives in her own home for three years before getting married, then she gets married, and then one month after she gets married, she decides to sell her house because she and her husband want to uh, move to a new city for new jobs. Well, in that case, Obviously, the husband will fail the two-year residency requirement and the husband doesn't own the home. So the IRS will 
evaluate them separately, but it's going to assume that the husband owned the house for the exact same amount of time that the wife owned the house, three years. So the husband will pass that part of the criteria, but then will fail the residency criteria. So then the IRS will take whatever partial exclusion the husband is entitled to, assuming the husband is entitled to any partial exclusion. We don't you know, necessarily have enough information at this point to determine that. But if the husband does have any partial exclusion, the IRS will take that portion, add it to whatever the exclusion the wife is entitled to, and then declare that sum total to be what the couple is jointly entitled to. And we're, we're going to see some more detailed examples of this later on. One thing I wanted to point out is that there were some significant changes to this law in 2009 that actually made it harder to claim the uh, tax exclusion. And that's just because uh, in 2009, Congress needed to raise more tax revenue. The whole world was in a financial crisis. So it amended the rules around home sale capital gains tax exclusions to be more restrictive. And so before 2009, you only had to meet the two-year residency requirement, but after 2009, you had to both meet the residency requirement and do some other stuff in order to get the full exclusion. One of the changes that came about in 2009 is that the IRS said, even if you meet the two-year residency requirement, you can still only claim the tax exclusion for periods of what it called qualified use. Any periods that are non-qualified use you cannot claim the tax exclusion for, even if you fully meet the residency requirement. And so that introduced this obvious question, well, what is qualified use versus non-qualified use? And so the IRS clarified this, that non-qualified use is, after 2009, anytime the home is not actually being lived in as a primary residence by either you or your spouse. Before 2009, uh, as long as you met the two years residency within five years, the IRS didn't care what you did with the other three years. But after 2009, then it is looking at not only the two-year residency, but also for the other three years, was it qualified use? So for example, renting your home out is not qualified use. Even if you lived there for two years, if you rented your house out for the other three years, that would be not qualified use. And so after 2009, you wouldn't be able to uh, get an exclusion for those three years. Now, there's lots of exceptions around this. And so I just wanted to paint the big picture before we get into the exceptions. So I just wanted to make sure you understand that there is basically this concept called non-qualified use that comes onto the scene after 2009. Okay, so what are some of the exceptions? Well, one of the big ones uh, in particular is that the last date that the home is used as a primary resident extending to the date that the home is sold, that last chunk will not be considered non-qualified use. That sounds a little complicated, so let me repeat that again. If you move, if you're using the house as a primary residence, so you're fulfilling the residency requirement, let's say you fulfill the two years, then you move out, and then sometime later, you sell the house. So you don't move in at any point uh, once you move out. That last segment, when you're not living in the house, is not considered non-qualified use. That is just a, a blanket exception that the IRS made. Because the IRS understands it is pretty common to move out of your house 
into a new house because you bought a new house and then, you know, sometime later sell your old house because you not you're not always just lucky enough to be able to time the sale and a purchase of a home right on the heels of each other. And so the IRS just made this exception that said when you move out up until the time that you sell, as long as you didn't move back in, that last chunk will not be considered non-qualified. The second area that the IRS said is considered not non-qualified double negative there, I know a little bit complex, uh, is any temporary absence that doesn't exceed two years and is due to a change in employment, health condition, or other unforeseen circumstance. Very vague, unforeseen circumstance. Now, we're going to define what these terms mean, employment, health condition, other unforeseen circumstance, uh, in a moment. But I just wanted to make sure I highlight that after 2009, There is this concept of non-qualified use, which is anytime you're not living in the house, but there are two exceptions the IRS made. Exception number one is after you move out until the time you sell, as long as you didn't move back in, that last chunk is not considered non-qualified. And any temporary absence uh, less than two years, or two years or less rather, that is due to a change in employment, health condition, or unforeseen circumstance is also not considered non-qualified. And so assuming that you don't have one of these two valid exceptions, then what happens if you have non-qualified use? Uh, Basically, you don't get the full tax exclusion, even if you satisfy the two-year residency requirement. If you don't satisfy the two-year residency requirement, you just don't get the tax exclusion at all. But if you do satisfy the two-year residency requirement and you have some non-qualified use, then you're only going to get a partial tax exclusion. And basically the way that partial exclusion math is calculated is as a percentage, a fraction, where the denominator is the total number of days you own the home full stop, and the numerator is the total number of days that you own the home before 2009 plus the uh, only the number of days that you lived in the home starting in 2009. Everything else is considered non-qualified use, and you don't get tax exclusion for those days, for that portion, that percentage. Okay, so I know that is a little bit like mind-bending and just maybe hard to follow on a podcast. So let's just walk through some quick examples to uh, help you see, get a feel for how this works. So let's say you have a married couple. They've bought a home for a million dollars. They sell it for $1.6 million. So there's $600,000 in gain, 500000 of which Potentially, they might be able to exclude from taxes, and then $100,000 of which there's no chance they're going to have to pay taxes no matter what. Uh, And let's say they lived there in the home as their primary residence for two years, and then they move out and they rent the house out for three years, and they sell exactly five years after they buy the house. So What are the tax consequences in this scenario? They're going to get the full tax exclusion of $500,000. Now, why? One, they met the two-year residency requirement because they actually lived in the house for two years. Two, they fall within the valid exception to non-qualified use because, again, remember, the period after you move out of the home up until the day you sell, as long as you don't move back in, is not considered non-qualified use. In this example, they rented the home out for three years, and then they sold it exactly at the five-year mark. So they satisfy the two-year residency rule, and 
their three-year chunk, that last chunk, doesn't get counted as non-qualified. So they get the full half-million-dollar gain, and then they just pay taxes on the last $100,000. $1.6 million sale, $1 million acquisition originally. All right, uh, let's do a little twist. Second example is you have basically the same facts here. So you have married couple... They buy the house for a million dollars. They sell it for $1.6 million. But this time, they live in the house uh, not quite two years. And then they move out. They rent the house out for the remainder of the time. And then again, they sell it uh, exactly at the five-year mark. So here, they failed the two-year residency requirement. And even though the period after they moved out is validly an exception from the non-qualified use constraint because you know they didn't move back in they just rented it out for a little bit more than three years they won't be able to claim any of the tax exclusion because even though they do fall within that valid exception to non-qualified use they didn't pass the first test which is the two-year residency requirement so again you need both of those things to get the full exclusion so in this second example they're going to have to pay uh, capital gains taxes on the full uh, $600,000 of gain on their sale Okay, so let's dive into another example that's a little bit more complicated. Let's say our married couple, again, buys their home for a million dollars and then sells it for $1.6 million. But what happens is uh, they move it. Once they buy it, they move in, live there for exactly one year. Then one of the spouses gets a one-year job rotation to you know some other place with their company. And then while they're away, they rent out the house for one year. Then after one year being away, they move back in and then live there two more years. So now we're a total of four years. Then they move out again, rent the house out for two more years. So they've owned the home now for a total of six years and they sell right at the six-year mark. So here we have like four discrete usage periods. Number one, they move in for one year where they're living there as a primary residence. Number two, they move out for a job rotation for one year. Number three, they move back in. This time they live there for two full years. Number four, they move out again, rent it out for two years, and then they sell. Okay, so in this situation, what are the tax consequences? Here, they're still going to get the full tax exclusion of $500,000 because First, the IRS is going to look back five years from the date of sale to evaluate the two-year residency requirement. And in this case, it was satisfied because they lived there when they moved back from their job rotation. They lived there for two years. So that satisfies the residency requirement. The next thing the IRS is going to do is to determine whether there's any non-qualified use, namely any time that the spouses were not living in the house. And here there were. There was one year where they were out on a job rotation and then two years after they moved out the second time where they were renting the house out. And each of those is going to uh, have a valid exception. The first year when they were out on the job rotation is going to be a valid exception because they moved due to a change in employment. And the second period when they moved out and they rented the house out is also going to be a valid exception because it is the last time they moved out, they didn't move back in, and they just sold the house. Remember, that last chunk is considered 
is not considered non-qualified use. So because both of those fall within valid exceptions, they're still going to be able to take the full $500,000 capital gains exclusion because they met the two-year residency requirement. Okay, so I know it's a little bit confusing, but I wanted to run through some of these examples so you could get a feel for how the rule is actually applied in, a, in an actual scenario. All right, I mentioned a moment ago that there is an exception to the non-qualified use that the IRS grants you if you could not live in the home, if there was a temporary absence not more than two years due to a change in employment, health, or unforeseen circumstances. And so I wanted to talk about what qualifies as a change in employment, health, or unforeseen circumstances. And so the IRS has published some helpful regulations and examples, and so let's take a look at what those are. The first thing is, uh, for each of these three areas, employment, health, and unforeseen circumstances, there is what's known as a safe harbor uh, where the IRS, by default, automatically gives you the exception if you qualify for the safe harbor. And the safe harbor is basically a little test that you use to analyze your situation. And if you pass that test, then the IRS will just automatically grant you the valid exception. If you fail the safe harbor test, it doesn't mean that you lose the exception, it just means the the IRS doesn't automatically grant it to you. You may have to show more evidence or prove more, but you don't automatically, you're not automatically denied, you're just not automatically granted right away. So for change in unemployment, the safe harbor is 50 miles. Specifically, if your temporary absence is due to a job change where your new job location is at least 50 miles farther from your house compared to your old job location, then if it's greater than 50 miles, then by default, you will qualify for the safe harbor and it won't be considered non-qualified use. If you didn't have an old job like you were working at home, then your new job location just has to be 50 miles or more away from your house. And importantly, that job change must have occurred when you actually owned the home and were using the home as your primary residence. In other words, the job change has to be the motivating reason for why you had a temporary absence in the first place. It doesn't matter if it's a new job or a continuation of, of an old job where they just relocated you. The only thing matters is the location and the change in your commute distance, okay? So that's the uh, exception for the change in job location. Now, what about changes in health? Changes in health will qualify for an exception basically if anybody in your family who is living at the home has an actual illness or injury and on a physician's recommendation, you stop living in the home. Maybe because you want to be close to the hospital for treatment, for example. If those conditions are true, it's somebody in your family who is living in the home who has an actual illness or injury as like diagnosed by a physician, and for that reason you have to temporarily not live in the home, then that will qualify for the safe harbor for changes in health circumstances. 
It can't just be that, you know, moving out of your house is like beneficial for your health and well-being. Uh, that's not going to qualify for the non-qualified use. It has to be an actual illness or injury. Okay, the third exception around unforeseen circumstances also has a safe harbor that kicks in anytime there is like a natural or man-made disaster, uh, the death of either yourself or a family member, a job loss that makes you eligible for unemployment benefits, a change in employment status that makes you unable to afford living in your house, uh, divorce or legal separation, multiple births resulting from the same pregnancy. There's like a laundry list of things that the IRS will consider to automatically qualify for the safe harbor. Now, if you don't fit into one of the things on that list, it doesn't mean that you cannot get the unforeseen circumstances exception. It just means that the IRS may ask for more evidence and it will be more of a case-by-case determination rather than an automatic default granting of it uh, using the safe harbor. Okay, so those are the main exceptions to the non-qualified use uh, requirement, the change in employment status, the change in health, and the unforeseen circumstances, and each of them have a safe harbor provision that will automatically grant you the exception. But again, not qualifying for the safe harbor doesn't knock you out of consideration either. It just may mean that you have to present more evidence uh, for the IRS to review on a case-by-case basis. Okay, so that's pretty much the big picture that I wanted to cover for the home sale capital gains tax exclusion. There are lots of nuances to be aware of for really understanding how the home sale capital gains exclusion works. So if you want a really fine-grained understanding of those details and all the nuances, I definitely encourage you to check out the blog post that I wrote on this topic, uh, which I will link to in the show notes. That blog post also contains a lot of narrative examples that tweak little facts uh, with, uh, in each example bit by bit so you can see exactly how the tax consequences change when you change slight facts. And that will really give you a better sense for how the uh, tax exclusion works. And so you can then apply it and think about how it might work in your scenario depending on you know what your situation is. So if you want the full fine-grained understanding of how this area of tax works, then be sure you check out that blog post because it's going to be the most efficient way to really absorb this material. But for this podcast episode, I just wanted to cover the big picture, high-level concept so you understand you know, what the home sale capital gains exclusion does and the basic rules for how it works. Okay, if you like this episode, please be sure to hit that subscribe button to get new episodes automatically sent to you. I'd love for you to not miss any episodes because the Hack Your Wealth podcast is a mix of solo shows like this one where I walk you through frameworks and strategies and rules step by step that are important for uh, managing your personal finances, as well as interviews with guests who share their expertise about specific areas of personal finance, and finally, profile interviews of business owners who are trying to turn their side hustle into financially self-sustaining passive income streams where we break down what they do, how they do it, and how much they're earning. So be sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss any of that great content. Also would love it if you could help me out and take 30 seconds to go to Apple Podcasts and leave a podcast review. 
It helps to support this podcast, helps other people who are looking for topics like this find the podcast. So I would be so grateful if you could take a minute and just help us leave an honest review. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Hack Your Wealth podcast with Andrew Chen. If you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes and check out hackyourwealth.com for all our latest content.